Let's all turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We are doing something a little bit different as you see this morning. We're taking a break from our study of the book of Mark. If you've not been with us uh, here at UPC, we are, we're engaged in a lengthy study of the book of Mark, um, but we're going to break from that today and the next two Sundays And we're going to talk about peacemaking. And I want to tell you why we're doing this. Uh, This is something that the pastors and the elders have been talking about for some time. How can we help acquaint our church family with peacemaking? So the reason that we're doing this is not necessarily because there's a lot of conflict in our church. I just want you to know that. We're not addressing a big problem here. Uh, God has really blessed UPC over the years with an amazing kind of peace. I've never been in a church family like this, and it's wonderful. So we're not doing this because there's a crying uh, need or some kind of all-out warfare going on in our church family. Uh, But rather, it's because a key part of our vision as a church is gospel transformation. And when we look into God's Word and study it together and learn about what He teaches in the Bible, we are transformed. We become more like Jesus. And after all, Jesus is called in the Bible the Prince of Peace. He is the peace child. So if we would become more and more like Jesus, it behooves us to study and learn about peacemaking. Uh, We had a seminar back in January called Resolving uh, everyday conflict. I don't know if some of you were there that that evening. And then in February, we hosted a conflict coaching training event. And right now, uh, unbeknownst to most of you, we are in the process of putting together a peacemaking team in order to coach people through conflict because it will indeed happen. In fact, that's the other reason why we felt it was it would be important to do a peacemaking series to get us prepared to get us equipped as a church family. Because the more you and I as a church try to be a gospel community, the more that our life groups seek to become gospel communities, we are going to have conflict. It's just a natural outgrowth of spiritual maturity. So here's the plan. Today's topic we're going to talk about is the basis of peacemaking. And then come back next week, we're going to look at the imperative of peacemaking. I'm going to talk about the realities of idolatry and repentance next Sunday. And then we'll conclude the three-part series on August 10th by talking about some real practical ways to resolve conflict and make peace. So the practical comes last. We're going to look today at a more theological foundation, biblical foundation for peacemaking, the basis of it. So the text is Ephesians chapter 2. It's found on page 1242 of the Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, pick one out from the chair around you and turn to page 1242. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Hear God's word. Therefore, says Paul the Apostle, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Amen. Um, Almost every Sunday, at the end of the worship service, whoever is preaching that day will give the congregation what is called a benediction. It means a good word. It's the blessing from God to the people of God. It's not a prayer, by the way, so you don't have to stand there and close your eyes. In fact, I think it's better to open your eyes and receive what God has to give you. It's, it's his parting blessing as you go out into the world, the benediction. And most often, the words we say for that benediction are these. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now, what would it look like if God really gave you peace? Maybe you think of peace as a a warm, fuzzy feeling, sort of a Thomas Kincaid feeling. The feeling you get when you look up in the stars and you feel that all is right with the world. Or maybe to you, you think of peace in terms of relationships. You know, not arguing so much with your husband or wife or kids or parents or friends. Or getting along with your co-workers and that sort of thing. Or perhaps you think of peace globally and politically. Peace between nations. The absence of conflict and war. War, after all, is an awful thing. We rightly long for the day when passenger jets no longer get shot out of the sky or when nations study war no more. All those are valid ways of thinking about peace. But when we say, may God give you peace, we're asking for much more than a a sentimental feeling or peace and quiet in the home or uh, even an end to armed conflict between nations. Verse 14, look at our verse uh, 14 in the text this morning. says something profound. Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace. 
The word peace is in this text four times. So obviously it's the theme of this passage of scripture. It's the Greek word Irene. We get our name Irene from that. If you know anyone named Irene, it's from the Greek word for peace. And it harks back to the Hebrew word shalom that I'm sure you've heard before. Shalom, it means completeness, well-being, blessedness, wholeness, the state of being completely reconciled with God and with other people. That's shalom. So here's what Paul's saying in this text. He is saying Jesus is the peacemaker. As I was telling the kids, he is the peacemaker child when you put your faith in him you can begin to experience peace and we're going to learn today on three different levels peace with God peace with other people and peace even within yourself now maybe the war metaphor is actually helpful to us this morning I'm going to say this morning that human beings are fighting three different wars Or maybe it would be appropriate to say we're fighting one war on three different fronts. A cosmic war with God, a civil war with other people, and a covert war that rages in our own hearts. So we're going to look at each of those uh, theaters of war, if you will, and see how the peace that Jesus is addresses each of those wars through faith in Jesus You can have peace in all three. Wouldn't that be nice to have? Wouldn't that be nice, wonderful to have and to know and to experience peace with God, peace with others, and peace even in here? Some of you came this morning desperately needing one or more of those things. So let's dive in. First, Jesus is our peace in the cosmic war that human beings fight with God. Verses 11 and 12 of our passage talk about this look at verse 11 therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world all right let's put the pause button on and talk a little bit about the background of this letter. Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was one of his prison letters. He spent some time in a Roman prison and he wrote Ephesians there. Ephesus was a port city, a wealthy port city in the Roman province of Asia, modern day Turkey we're talking about. Paul's audience is mostly Gentiles. Now Jews referred to these Gentiles disparagingly as the uncircumcised you see that in there Paul says in verse 12 that these Gentiles used to be in a desperate situation he says they were Christless separated from Christ he says they were homeless alienated from the commonwealth of Israel he says they were hopeless having no hope and he says they were godless without God in the world in other words they were clueless they didn't have a clue I was raised in the South, and when someone was in trouble, uh, we would often say they were in a fix. You ever heard that expression? They were in a fix. Well, the Gentiles, according to Paul here, were in a big, major fix. Verse 13 says that they were far off. 
That's Paul's expression. Why was this the case? Why were the Gentiles far off from God? Why were they in a fix? Well, because they were Gentiles. You see, before Christ came, Gentiles were de facto outside the covenant family. Israel were the chosen people of God. If you weren't a Jew, in order to know God and be included in his family, you had to become a Jew in order to fully enjoy the blessings of God. You would have to, in other words, submit to the Jewish rituals, circumcision and so forth. During Old Testament times, in fact, you would have to physically move within the boundaries of Israel and go to the temple to worship God and offer sacrifices and so on. Now, to be sure, the blessings of the covenant rippled out to the non-Jewish world, right? God wasn't compassionate only to Jewish people. I mean, think of uh, Rahab, the harlot. Think of Ruth. Think of the Ninevites in the book of Jonah, for example. Jesus We've been learning through the book of Mark. Jesus often ministered to Gentiles. But for the most part, to be a Gentile was to be a foreigner, a stranger, an alien, an outsider when it came to salvation. So Gentiles had a major problem. But wait a second. So did the Jews. Paul is not just saying in here that only the Gentiles were needing to be reconciled to God, the Jews were in a fix too. Look at verse 11 again because he says that the Gentiles are called the circumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Do you hear the uh, sarcasm in Paul's voice there? You should. He's being sarcastic. He's talking about the Jews and he's saying that they call themselves the circumcision and well, they're, they're, they very well might, but to most Jews of the day, circumcision was just a surgical procedure. It was just a religious ritual. It was just something done, as Paul says, in the flesh by hands. What was circumcision supposed to be? In the Old Testament, God again and again and again said, you must be circumcised in heart. His focus was on the heart, the state of the heart. Circumcise your hearts, God told the people of Israel through the prophets. Repent, in other words, right? Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Love God. Love your neighbor. Be the people God has called you to be. Practice justice. Put away your idols. All of that was subsumed under that thought of circumcision. But Israel, as a nation, failed to do that. And when Jesus came, what did they do? They rejected him as their Messiah and nailed him to a cross. See, sometimes, friends, you can have all the spiritual blessings in the world and be miles away from salvation. You can still have a modern smartphone and GPS and so on like that, but still be lost. And so it was with Israel. Circumcised in the flesh, but far away from God. Being Jewish was not good enough. They had a sin problem just like the Gentiles did. That's why Paul says in verse 16 that both, you might want to notice that word both in verse 16, both Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled to God by the cross. Sin has corrupted everybody. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says in Romans. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Paul says in Romans 8. See our natural bent. Is to resist God's grace. To reject God's law. To rebel against God's authority. We have this sin nature. You have it coursing through your veins. The moment you're conceived in the womb you have it. It wants control. It wants to call the shots. It wants to do our thing instead of God's thing. But this passage says. That despite that cosmic war that human beings have fought against God for centuries. Jesus stepped into the war zone. He came to bring peace between God and us. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What news that is. Later this year, uh, we're going to be marking, I don't know if you remember this, but the 25th anniversary of the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. And the end of the Cold War. November 9th, 1989, that was when the German people started tearing down the wall separating East and West Berlin. This wall had divided Germany for almost 30 years. 26 miles long this wall was. Made of concrete slabs 12 to 15 feet high. But as the wall fell, and many of you know these pictures and you remember the news reports the mayor of West Berlin said we Germans are the happiest people on earth 2,000 years ago a much much more impenetrable wall was dismantled by the blood of Jesus Christ it was a wall that our sin had erected between God and us we were his enemies We didn't want God to rule over us. We deserved His curse and His wrath. But Jesus became that curse for us. His death on the cross tore down that wall. And that's why we could sing earlier today, Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with His blood. He has brought us nigh to God. That is really good news. Peace with God. But Paul wants to say more than this. As wonderful as that is, the point of this text is to go beyond that and to say that there's not just a cosmic war going on, there's also a civil war. And Jesus is our peace in the civil war that human beings fight with each other. Verses 14 through 18. Let's read those again. It says in verse 14. He himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. Now he's not talking about God and us there. I'll show you who he's talking about in a moment. He has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments. Expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself. One new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. Here's more good news. Uh, Isn't it crazy how human beings behave in an elevator? 
when you're, I mean, introverts like me hate elevators. We don't know what in the world to do in there. But when you've got four, five, six people standing in an elevator, that number up there has never been so interesting. (laughs) And have you also noticed, this doesn't always happen, but it happens most of the time, that when you pull up to a stoplight and someone else pulls up next to you, they rarely stop level with you so that you're looking at each other. They're always a little bit behind you or a little bit ahead of you or they let that divider thing between the front and back seats block the view that they might have of you. You notice that? Why is that? Why do we do that? It's because we're suspicious of one another. We are afraid of each other. Many of us don't even know our neighbors down the street. Why? Well, again, it's because of the fall. It's because of the fall of man into sin. Sin did not just sever our vertical relationship with God. It severed our horizontal relationships with other people too. After all, look at Adam and Eve. We've talked about this before. What did they immediately start doing after they ate the forbidden fruit? Accusing each other, betraying each other, hiding from each other, harboring ill will toward each other. Adam said, this wife you gave me, God... She's just not a good fit. We can't get along. Why'd you put her with me? Immediately, you see, what what happened was that walls began to go up among human beings. Walls of distrust, of racial or ethnic pride. Walls of competitiveness, of bitterness about past injuries. Walls of icy silences or loud cursing or just plain fear. There's conflict everywhere you look. From the rants on Facebook and Twitter to the rancor in Congress. From the bedrooms in Waterford Lakes to the dusty streets of Syria. Conflict is everywhere. And Paul in Ephesians 2 chooses the worst case scenario to illustrate conflict. The animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles. To Gentiles... Jews were enemies of the human race. Did you know that? Enemies of the human race. And I've already alluded to the label that Jews gave Gentiles, the uncircumcised. Jews also called Gentiles dogs. Jews said that Gentiles had been created by God as fuel for the fires of hell. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or vice versa, you know what they had? Not a wedding, a funeral. You've seen Fiddler on the Roof, right? Tevia, his first daughter, had an unarranged marriage with another Jew. That was bad, but it was tolerable. His second daughter had an unarranged marriage with a Jewish communist. That was worse, but Tevia eventually accepted it. But his third daughter married a Gentile. And what did he say? You're dead to me. That's how Jew and Gentile felt toward each other. Think of the temple in Jerusalem too at the time of Christ. Herod's temple had this area called the court of the Gentiles out there where non-Jews were allowed to assemble and walk around and roam about. But literal walls kept them out of the inner courts. 
And there were warning signs in both Latin and Greek that warned them of what would happen if they dared cross the line, the barrier, into the inner courts. Look at this picture. This was uh, discovered back in the uh, late 1800s, this, this tablet. It said, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. I grew up in the days in South Carolina when there were signs on water fountains that said white and colored. Signs on restrooms, whites, colored. Signs on doctor waiting rooms, whites and coloreds. We couldn't even swim in the same swimming pool with people of the opposite race. Same thing, see. Same kind of deal. Hostility, hate, discrimination, conflict between diverse groups of people created in the image of God. But God says that this civil war that rages between people has come to an end for all who are in Christ. Look at verse 14. He has made us both one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles or any two diverse groups. He has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now how, we might ask, did Jesus bring Jew and Gentile together? Well, verse 15 is the answer. Verse 15 says that it was by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus abolished the moral law, the, com the Ten Commandments, in other words. No, the Ten Commandments are still our rule to follow. What Jesus did was he set aside all of those ceremonial laws and rules that separated Jews and Gentiles. His death on the cross, in other words, meant that all those rules that have to do with sacrifices and feast days and clean and unclean animals were no longer necessary because Jesus was the sacrifice. All those rules about you know, priests and temple regulations and incense and offerings and the Day of Atonement and all that stuff, it no longer applied because Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus fulfilled those things in himself, and so they were rendered inoperative. So the message of the gospel is that, that, is that now there is one new man, verse 15, one new man in place of the two. Now get this, this is super important. Jesus did not turn Jews into Gentiles, nor did he turn Gentiles into Jews. Rather, he created a whole new race that race called Christian. And into that race he puts every single person who repents of sin and trusts in Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. At the foot of the cross you are loved and cherished by the Father. When you walk into the, through the doors of an evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, you leave all the labels outside. We are one in Christ. Jesus has removed the barriers I love how uh, our friend Steve Brown, who many of you know, puts it. He said, everybody who belongs to Jesus belongs to everybody who belongs to Jesus. Jesus didn't come just to rescue us from sin and save us from hell. That was awesome. 
But what Jesus also did was he came to create a new community called the church. And he longs for his church to be a place of peace. What did Jesus pray for in John 17? Holy Father, may they, speaking of us, be one as we are one. Listen, if there can be peace anywhere on earth, it ought to surely be among Christians. It's very grievous to our Savior when we, like Adam and Eve, hide from each other. When we lie to each other. When we talk about each other instead of talking to each other. When we gossip. When we avoid someone with whom we are uncomfortable. When we give up on each other. It grieves God very much when we who believe in Jesus decide that we are superior to others who believe in Jesus just because they don't see things exactly like us. Those kinds of behaviors are antithetical to the gospel. Five times in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. Later in Ephesians, Paul is going to call the gospel a gospel of peace. Jesus, as I said earlier, is called the Prince of Peace. The New Covenant is called the Covenant of Peace. The New Testament tells us to strive for peace, to pursue peace, to make peace, to maintain peace, to seek peace, to be at peace. Verses all throughout the Scriptures. The Gospel is called a message of reconciliation. The Gospel knocks all the barriers down. Galatians 3.28 says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, we can make peace with each other because God has made peace with us. I had a recent experience that I'll share just the basic outline of. This was a couple months ago. I was aware that I had a relationship that was broken. And it was largely because I didn't want to talk to this person and talk about our relationship. And God convicted me deeply of that. And I decided that uh, when I saw him next, which I knew was going to happen soon, I would pull him aside and we would go and we would talk. And as soon as I opened my mouth... Tears came to both our eyes. We embraced each other. And ever since then, I have, I have felt peace. It, I mean, when you clear the barrier away, there's something spiritual, deeply important that happens inside your heart. It's so beneficial. Peacemaking is not an option. That's why we're going to talk about it now for Another couple of weeks. The gospel of Jesus calls you to reconciliation wherever and whenever possible. Now, can you fully guarantee that there be reconciliation? No, but you can do your part. Come back next week and you'll learn a little bit more about how that is done. But there's one more thing I'll leave you with today. If you'll give me another five minutes of your attention. I want to say that Jesus is our peace. Not only in the cosmic war. Not only in the civil war. But finally... In this covert war that often rages in our own hearts and minds. I'm talking about the guilt and the shame 
that many believers battle every single day. And some of them are you. But nobody knows about it. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Every day, all day long, your head is filled with accusing thoughts. Like, you're no good. You're a lousy excuse for a Christian. Think about all the ways you failed to live an upright, holy life. Why, even when it comes to these things that Mike is talking about this morning, you don't measure up. You've hurt lots of people. You don't reach out. You don't look to your neighbors. You don't, you're so scared. You're so fearful. You, you don't want these relationships in your life. That's what you hear. Listen to me. If you're a Christian, and if you hear an accusing voice in your head like that, you can know that it is not the voice of God. Jesus came not only to give you peace with God and peace with other people, He came to give you this wonderful gift of peace within yourself. Peace of conscience. Look at verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What are those verses saying? They are saying, you want to know who you are? That is who you are. Everything said in this passage about the church collectively applies to you individually if you're a believer in Jesus. You've been brought near God by the blood of Jesus. You've been reconciled to him. You have access to the Father. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been adopted by the King. You have a place at His table. You're not an outsider looking in. You're an insider being sent out to tell outsiders how to get in. God loves you. That's what this passage shouts. God loves you. He prizes you. You're an object of His affection. Not because you're good, but because Jesus was good for you and you are in Him. Friends, that's the voice of your Father. That's the kind of stuff God wants to say to you every single moment of every day as you preach the gospel to yourself. Do you know what Jesus said to the disciples after he had risen from the dead? Now remember this. Peter, James, and John were the ones who fell asleep on Jesus when he was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not one of the disciples defended Jesus when he was falsely accused and condemned to die by the Romans. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three different times. Not one of the disciples lifted a finger to help Jesus carry his cross. Not one of them objected when Jesus was nailed to the cross. They all went fishing. Only two of them bothered to run to the empty tomb when they had heard the report from Mary that Jesus had possibly risen from the dead. But when Jesus came to the place where the disciples were staying after the resurrection, do you know what he said to them? Do you know the first words out of his mouth? Peace be with you. Wow. Peace be with you. After all that sin, after all that hurt, shalom be complete, be whole, well-being, blessedness, be reconciled. 
You tell that conscience of yours to give you a break. You are no longer a a stranger and an alien. You're a fellow citizen with all the saints, a member of the household of God. Jesus is your cornerstone. He shapes you. He sustains you. He has placed you in his body, the church, and along with all your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. The war is over. Jesus won. Peace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I remember what Matt said in his sermon last week. He said that God always gives us more than we can handle, so we'll pray. Father, peacemaking is more than we can handle. It's against our nature to live in peace with others. We are proud. We are boastful. We are scared. We are ashamed. There are all these things that go on in our minds and hearts that cause peacemaking to be very difficult. But Lord, thank you that you have done the work. You have removed the walls separating us from you. You can help us remove the walls that separate us from other people. And Lord, you've even gone inside our hearts and you've said shame and guilt be gone. Be at peace within yourself. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here today who doesn't know what I'm talking about, that today that man, that woman, that boy or girl will find a time and a place to tell you that they need you, that they need you to step into their lives and cause the war to stop, the fighting, the anger, the hurt, the betrayal, the loneliness, the fear. We pray that peace will be something that all of us have today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.